Tony Campolo had flown to a conference in Hawaii. He checked into his hotel, tried to get some sleep, but his internal clock woke him up at three in the morning. Starving, unable to go back to sleep, Tony looks for a place to go get an early breakfast. But the only place that's open is this greasy, dirty diner down a back alley. He walks into it, and there's a rather large gentleman behind the counter with this greasy, stained kitchen apron, leans over and goes, what do you want? Tony's not so hungry anymore. (laughs) But he figures a donut under a plastic case is pretty sanitary, so he orders a donut and black coffee and sits down to have his breakfast. And at 3.30 in the morning, in walk seven or eight, loud, provocatively dressed prostitutes discussing their night's work. Tony feels extremely uncomfortable. He is putting the, shoving the donut into his mouth. He's chugging his coffee. He's trying to make a quick escape when he hears the lady next to him say, you know what? Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39 years old. The lady next to her nastily replies, so what? It's your birthday. What do you want from me? A birthday cake? A birthday party? The lady goes, why do you have to be so mean to me? I just wanted somebody to know it was my birthday. I've never had a birthday party in my life. And Tony said at that moment he made a decision. He stays, drinks his coffee, and the ladies leave. When they go, he calls the owner of the diner over, whose names happen to be Harry, and says, Hey, those ladies, do they come in here every night? He goes, yeah, they're my regular customers. They're in here every night. He goes, what about the lady who sat next to me? Does she come in every night? He goes, yeah, that's Agnes. Why do you want to know? He says, because I heard her say tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say we throw a birthday party right here in the diner? Says the guy got this cute smile on his chubby cheeks and was just like, yeah, that's a great idea. Hey, Sal, Sal, come here. He calls his wife in back from the kitchen who looks remarkably like he does. And (laughs) she walks in and says, says, hey, this guy's got a great idea. He wants to throw Agnes a birthday party. She says, that's so great. Agnes is always helping other people, but nobody ever does anything nice for her. So they make their plans. Tony says he'll be back the next day at 2.30 in the morning with balloons and streamers and a cake. And Harry goes, no, 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 no. You get the decorations. I want to make the cake. So the next night, Tony shows up and they decorate that place from wall to ceiling. They've got balloons and streamers, even a big cardboard sign that says, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And Harry has got the word out. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, that diner is full of wall-to-wall hookers ready to celebrate (laughs) Agnes's birthday party. At 3.30, on the dot, in walk Agnes and her friend, and all of them are ready. They shout, happy birthday, Agnes. She looks like she's just ready to collapse. But when they bring out the cake and sing happy birthday, she completely loses it and is bawling right there. Harry acts like he's never seen Agnes in this way before. And so he kind of gruffly says, Hey, Agnes, blow out the candles. Hey, Agnes, cut the cake. She gets her composure just enough to say, Hey, Harry, uh, if it's okay, do we have to 
I mean, do we have to eat it right now? Harry goes, it's your cake. You do whatever you want to with it. Take it home if you want. She goes, oh, can I? I live just a few doors down. I'd really like to show my mom. I've never had a birthday cake before. And she carries that thing out of the diner like it's the holy grail. But the birthday girl just left. Nobody knows what to do anymore. So they all kind of look around at each other. And then they all look at Tony, who stands up on a chair and says, what do you say we pray? And at 3.45 in the morning, Tony Campolo leads half the prostitutes in Honolulu in a prayer. He says he prays for Agnes, that God would be good to her, that God would grant her salvation, and that she would find Jesus. Have you ever met someone who felt broken? Have you ever met someone who felt unloved? And what happens when that person is shown a true act of love? Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 9 looking at someone in the Bible who felt broken, who felt unloved. And we're going to see what we can learn from their story. My name is Ronald Long. And I have the privilege of serving Wayside Chapel as a pastor to middle school students. And it is such an honor to serve alongside them today as we all worship the same God and work for the same kingdom. Genesis 29, I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. If you will look with me, please, in verse 1. Genesis 29, verse 1. Jacob resumed his journey and went to the eastern country. Jacob is the son of Isaac, and he is running for his life because he has stolen the birthright and the blessing of his brother Esau. But before he skips town, his dad finds him and says, Hey, while you travel, when you go, don't marry any of the foreign women. Head east. And marry a woman from our own household, from your mother's brother. And so far, the journey has gone well for Jacob. He's traveled safe through wilderness, even seen a vision from God of God promising him that he will inherit the blessing of Abraham and that through him, the world will be blessed. So things are looking good. And providentially, he ends up in the part of the country exactly where he needs to be. Verse 2, he looked and saw a well In a field, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep were watered from this well. A large stone covered the opening of the well. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well and water the sheep. The stone was then placed back on top of the well's opening. Water was a scarce resource for the region. It didn't flow freely from a tap like it does for us. So whenever there was a well, they sought to protect it as best they could. And so what these guys have done is they've placed a large rock over the well's opening to protect it from being contaminated or spoiled by rival sheep herder gangs or things like that. I'm pretty sure that's a thing. They also, it's a safety precaution because they don't want their sheep to accidentally fall into the well and be lost, which, and it would also spoil the well if that happened. So there's a large rock on top of it, a large stone. And it says that they wait for all these shepherds to be gathered And they all lift it together so that no one has to do any of the heavy lifting all by themselves. Jacob walks up and he sees this sight. 
Verse 4. Jacob asked the men at the well, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they answered. Do you know Laban, grandson of Nahor? Jacob asked them. They answered, We know him. Is he well? Jacob asked. Yes, they said. And here's his daughter Rachel coming with his sheep. So God has truly been good to Jacob. He's led him right into his uncle's territory, right to the place he needs to be, and coming in his direction is his uncle's daughter. And while he's waiting for this girl and her sheep to come forward, he starts talking shop with the guys around the watering hole, right? Verse 7, Jacob said, Look, it's still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock, and then go out and let them graze. But they replied, We can't until all the flocks have been gathered and the stones rolled from the well's opening. Then we'll water the sheep. So maybe Jacob is trying to show these guys that he knows a thing or two about sheep herding, all right? Later on in life, God is going to bless Jacob through herding sheep. And so maybe this is a foreshadow of how God is going to do that through him. But also, Jacob is berating these guys for being lazy. He's saying it's not time for the sheep to all be here next to the water. They need to be out there eating, grazing at the end of the day, then bring them back and water the sheep. But they say, no, we got to wait for all these shepherds to come. Regardless of the case, while they were speaking, a certain someone has walked closer to where they were standing. Verse 9, while he was speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. Now I want you all to imagine with me, relive in your, in your past, that moment when you spotted the love of your life. Oh, okay, yeah. See some of y'all leaning over. For me, it was in college. And there was a church that was hosting free food in order to invite college students to their event, which was a strategy that worked very well. Now I get my burger... And I'm looking around, and I see this really cute blonde girl sitting just right over there. And I think I'm going to be smooth and, like, lead in with a compliment. So I sit down next to her and say, hey, I really like that Girl Scout shirt. That's pretty cool. To which Becca, my future wife, replies, uh, it's an Awana shirt. This is a start to a beautiful relationship between, between us. Now, Jacob sees Rachel like the sun is shining down on her and you can imagine angel choruses in the background all right and Jacob does what most guys do when he sees a pretty girl he starts showing off all right verse 10 as soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter Rachel with his sheep he went up and he rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle Laban's sheep so when I met Becca in college she was an avid cross-country runner, and I was an avid video game player. <laughs> but I got interested in cross-country really quick when I knew that that was this girl's thing. And the very first time we went up to Michigan, where she lives, this Alabama boy discovered what it means to be December in the North. It's so a 12-hour trip. So after we got done driving there, Becca said, I'm, I'm just, I got to get out of this car. I'm going on a run. And I said, I'm going with you. <laughs> and we went on a run in negative 15-degree weather. About half a mile in, I told Becca through my scarf and other things that I had on, I am going to die. Yeah. I meant it. All right. 
showing off has never been my strong point, all right? But Jacob does a pretty good job here, all right? Jacob does a pretty good job. Remember that large stone that covered the well's opening? Jacob goes up by himself and like lifts the stone off the well. Excuse me, ma'am, where's your bucket for your water, right? <laughs> he's trying to show off and he's trying to help his, this woman, this pretty girl, water her sheep. All right, I identify with Jacob. Because there are sometimes when Jacob does something that is very romantic, it's like, all right, go, man. And then there's other times when he's just very awkward. And he goes back and forth between the two. I feel like we're kindred spirits. Verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. <laughs> this is a little forward, don't you think, man? This is the very first kiss between a man and a woman in the Bible. Incidentally, it's also the first kiss where the guy weeps uncontrollably <laughs> right afterwards. It's possible, it's possible that Jacob is weeping tears of joy because God has been good to him. He's led him straight to the country he needs to be in, to the woman who is the exact type of woman his dad told him to marry, and he's just so happy. It could also be that he's a really awkward dude. <laughs> After the kissing and the weeping, he introduces himself. <laughs> Something he should have done before he went about kissing strangers. Verse 12. He told Rachel that he was her father's relative, Rebecca's son. She ran and told her father. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then he took him to his house, and Jacob told him all that had happened. And Laban said to him, Yes, you are my own flesh and blood. There's so much kissing going on in this chapter. Rachel Run Holmes tells her dad they've got family in town. Laban runs up, embraces Jacob, and kisses him. And in this culture, that was a sign of Jacob being welcomed into the family with hospitality and saying, Come on home with us. You're my relative. And so that's what happens. They all walk home hand in hand. And things are looking pretty good for Jacob at this point. Continuing on in verse 14. After Jacob had stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, Just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me, your, tell me what your wages should be. So for one month, Jacob stays at Laban's house. And Laban isn't asking the question, Hey, dude, when are you going to move out of my basement? Instead, he's saying, hey, you are a hard worker. You've been earning your keep. You deserve more than room and board. You're not my son nor my slave, both of whom would work for me for, for free. So name your price. What is it you want to work for? And this, again, is where Jacob gets pretty romantic. Verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah and the younger was named Rachel. Leah had ordinary eyes. But Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I'll work for you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. In the law of Moses, when a Hebrew slave had worked for seven years, it was him, he was supposed to be set free. So this is reminiscent of that. Laban is saying, or Jacob is saying to Laban, I will work for you for free for the privilege of marrying your daughter daughter, right? This is romantic stuff. Verse 19, Laban replied, better I give her to you than some other man. Stay with me. 
Now, this sounds like a great deal for Laban, right? He gets seven years of free work from this hardworking guy, and he gets to marry off one of his daughters to a close relative. Everything sounds like it's working pretty good. Now, I want you to get ready with me, okay? I want you to prepare your best, I'm in a chick flick movie, the romantic part, sigh, is going on, okay? I want you to get that ready because verse 20. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Aww. You guys are good, all right? This is adorable, right? Seven years is not a small amount of time. But because of Jacob's great love for Rachel, we're told the time just flies by. But remember when I told you he flip-flopped back and forth, really romantic, really awkward? Here we go. (laughs) Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed. I want to sleep with her. Okay, Jacob. (laughs) Look, to all you guys out there, there may come a time where you meet a girl and you want to marry her. I want to challenge you. You go ask her father for his permission and his blessing. All right? As As a dad to daughters, like I want that strange boy, whoever he is, to actually come confront me and say, I want your permission and blessing. It's what I did to my now father in law, Brian. On a separate trip to Michigan, I approached him and asked for his permission and his blessing, which he graciously gave me without cleaning any of the shotguns he owns, right? (laughs) He does own a few. But men, for best practice sake, don't bring up the wedding night during that conversation. (laughs) That's not good, right? However awkward Jacob is, Laban agrees, It's time for a wedding. What he doesn't say, however, is that the man who cheated his brother out of birthright and blessing is about to be cheated himself. Remember, Jacob worked for Rachel. Verse 22. So Laban invited all the men of the place to a feast. That evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. When morning came... There was Leah. I love reading to my daughters, all right? Uh, It's a joy that I have. And one of the books that we we read together often is called the Jesus Storybook Bible, all right? If you've got young kids, it's a great, great way to introduce them to Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. But this is the picture that corresponds to this moment right here. Like, this is that picture. (laughs) Yes. I agree, Jacob. (laughs) Now, just before you think that Jacob's not the brightest crown in the box, here's what's going on. Remember, in ancient cultures, the bride's face was covered during the wedding celebration. All right? And it says that Laban took this Leah to him at night. And since electricity wasn't invented then, uh, we can see how Jacob would miss it until the morning came. Obviously, he is not pleased. Look with me now at the rest of verse 25. So he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? And Laban answered, it's not the custom in this place to give your younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. 
Complete this week of wedding celebration, and we will give this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. Laban invents a custom to cover up for his scheme and says, it's fine. Complete this marriage week. Wrap that up. Have another marriage week where you can have the daughter you originally worked for me for and then work another seven years and we'll call it even. And Jacob did just that. Verse 28. He finished the week of celebration and Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, as his wife. And Laban gave his slave Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also, and indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah and worked for Laban another seven years. Have you ever put yourself in the place of Leah? Nobody notices you. You have ordinary eyes. But your sister is shapely and beautiful. Nobody steps out of nowhere, kisses you, and then declares their love for you and says they'll work seven years for free just for the honor of calling you wife. Your own father thinks you're so helpless that he's got to cheat a man into marrying you. I bet Leah felt broken and unloved. Being in student ministry has afforded me the opportunity of seeing lots of broken people. And sometimes those broken people are the students themselves. Students who have experienced the death of a parent or grandparent or family member. Students who have gone through this the tragedy of divorce and trying to figure out what is new normal going to look like. Students who have been through sickness and pain, financial need. Sometimes students walk through pretty dark places. What I love about Wayside, though, is how we have built into our ministry small group leaders who walk alongside our students and minister to them on a weekly basis. And I'm so excited to see how these Adults who walk with students through really dark valleys and really high mountaintops will get to see their impact on future generations. But students aren't the only ones we see who are broken. Sometimes our students go and minister to the broken. This summer, the middle school ministry is going on a mission trip to Nashville. While we're there, we're going to love on apartment complex kids and kids in local neighborhoods who just need to be shown loved and told they're special. We're going to spend time with adults in assisted living facilities, just loving on their residents and telling them that God loves them. We're going to mow grass. We're going to paint houses. We're going to pull weeds. We're going to show people in a real practical way what God's love looks like. High school ministry also does so much in service of God's kingdom. This summer, they're going to Guatemala where they're going to show love to those who desperately need to be shown and told they are loved by God. This last spring break, they spend an entire week here in San Antonio ministering, and they do this throughout the year as well. They go to homeless shelters and food pantries, places of great need here in San Antonio where they themselves go to love the broken. But what I love about our students is they don't just wait for us to say, here's the date of the mission trip to show love. 
So often when the new kid comes into, the, into our ministry here at Wayside, I see students pulling friends over and going to introduce themselves to the new ones so that they feel like they belong. I see students hand in hand or arm in arm bringing friends to ministry so that they can experience and hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They bring friends from neighborhoods, from schools, from sports teams. And even better, I hear stories of our students who go into those places to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those friends who need to hear it and will receive it best from a close friend. They tell their friends about how there's a God who made them and loves them. And that God is separated from us because of our sin that separates us from his holiness. But because he loves us so much, he sent his son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that neither you nor I could ever live. And then he sent Jesus to the cross to die a painful death in our place. The one we deserve to die, but Jesus did it for us. And then three days later, Jesus gloriously rose from the dead to prove that his life was perfect, that his death was satisfactory, and that he is, in fact, our God, our King, and our Savior. And if we put our trust in him, he will save us from a life of sin today, and he will save us into an eternal heaven with him. This is the good news that our students go and share often. But I want to think for a moment about the people who do feel broken and the people who do feel unloved. What goes through their mind? What keeps them up at night? For Leah is that, what she, is that she desperately craved the love and affection of her husband. And God saw her plight. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, and named him Reuben. For she said, The Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. Reuben literally means, Behold, a son. To have a son as a wife in this day and age was a great honor and should have been a great blessing to her husband. But look with me at verse 33. She conceived again gave birth to a son and said, the Lord has heard that I am unloved and has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. Simeon means hear. And she is saying, God hears that even after I've given my husband one son, I am still unloved by him. But maybe after two sons, Jacob will show Leah the love she desires. Verse 34. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, At last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne three sons for him. Therefore he was named Levi. Levi means be attached. And after three sons, Leah still does not feel attached. Leah does not feel loved by her husband. It's almost like she's pleading with him through how she names her children. Behold, a son, hear me, be attached to me. But Jacob does not love her. Though she's given him three sons, he loves Rachel more. What lengths will people go to 
to feel loved. For some, they try to feel love at the end of a needle, the bottom of a bottle, the overdose of a pill. Some try to feel love in the arms of a stranger while a spouse sits at home wondering if everything's over. Some try to feel love by success or money or power. But ultimately, none of these things can satisfy. And after three sons, Leah finally begins to understand and know that the love she so desperately craves to come from her husband will not satisfy her desire to feel loved even though she is broken. Look with me now at verse 35. And I love this. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. And Leah stopped having children. Judah. The name literally means to praise. And Leah, in a very real sense, has now finally understood that she is not lovely because she lacks the the love of her husband, but she is lovely because she is loved by the God who made her and the God who loves her. I love this too. The wives of Jacob will eventually bear for him the 12 men who will become the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. And who are the men who become the priests, who walk into the very presence of God, into the holy of holies? Not Rachel's son, but Levi, Leah's son. And from what tribe will the kings of Israel come from? Not from Benjamin, not from Joseph, but from Judah, the son of praise. And even though Leah is unloved by her husband, she is a princess in the eyes of God. And yet there's still more. Because from Judah, eventually, a greater king will come. Leah is the one who is listed in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And Leah and Jesus have a lot more in common than we might think at first. Remind you guys of Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 3. He grew up before him, speaking of Jesus, prophesying about him, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we did not value him. Leah was despised. Leah was rejected. But God used her to bring about priests and kings. Leah was unloved by her husband, but beloved by the creator of the universe. You may feel broken today. But let me remind you that the creator of the universe loved you so much that he sent his son to a cross to die so that you might be 
right with him, to prove his great love for you. When we realize we are broken but beloved, it allows us to better share love with those around us who also feel broken and who also need to be shown love of God. And what does that look like? It's as easy as being present when a friend gets the phone call that a relative is sick or that a close friend has passed away. It's as easy as stopping someone who you haven't seen in a long time and saying, hey, No, really. How are you? It's praying for someone over coffee, over lunch, or even taking someone a meal whose life seems to just be spiraling out of control or mowing their grass or going over to a neighbor's house, knocking on the door and saying, I've lived next to you for years, but I don't know your name. I'd like to get to know you. It's throwing a birthday party for a stranger whom you've never met before but has said that they've never had one before in their life. It is so important that the people of God who should understand what it feels like to be loved the most show love to those who are broken. Do you remember Agnes and the diner? Tony gets off his stool and Harry The owner of the diner leans over the counter and he almost has like a look of hostility on his face. He looks mad. And he says, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you go to? Tony says the words came to him in that moment. And he said, I go to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry folds his arms. He shakes his head. He goes, no, you don't. No. There's no church like that. Because if there was, I'd go to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the kind of church I'd go to. Friends, let us be a church who shows love in unexpected places. Let us be a church who knows that there are broken people in our world who are in fact so beloved by their God. Let me pray for us. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for how you show your great love to us how you proved it by sending Jesus to die for us. God, thank you for loving us despite our brokenness, despite our sin. God, help us to be a people who know and understand what it means to be loved and to show love. We love you, God, and we offer you our lives as a sacrifice of praise. It's in Jesus' name I ask your blessing over these people and our church. Amen.